0: Man, it's been a wonderful time for me personally, diving into James. uh, A lot of things that I had not really seen the significance of, as you study the Word, you start to see these major pictures, how they take shape and form in a a different way. And so uh, this is a series we've been going through called James, the Faith That Works. It's the kind of faith that doesn't just say things in emptiness, but follows through and does them. All right And so last week we talked about the evidence of faith. Like what is the evidence of, a, of faith in a person's life? Genuine, real, living faith. And so we walked through these three different areas. The uh, first area we talked about last week was the dead faith. that it's a, a fake response. Like what comes out of your mouth is not evident by the things that are in your life. And uh, he said it this way, verse 14, he said, what good is it, my brothers, really brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Again, that's a rhetorical question. It's the idea that do you really believe that that person was trusting in Jesus if there was not evidence that he was born again? And so uh, I, I, I love the picture we talked about last week. It's been a major part of student ministry in my life through the years that, uh, that as a person stands to do a trust fall, they declare, I trust that the people behind me will catch me. And, and the way they demonstrate the words that they spoke is that they fall back and trust them. And that's just a simple way of saying, showing that if a person stood on this ledge, and said, I believe you could tr- that you could catch me, I trust you, but does not fall back, you would question whether that person was really trusting him in the first place. And so that was the first area. Uh, by the way, just pause. There's a lot of people in this world that say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a whatever you fill in the blank. But the evidence is by their works. That, and it's not their works, it's the working of God in and through them. And so that first area, dead faith. The second area we talked about last week was this idea of demonic faith. And literally, uh, there's this rebellion that's going on, but it's in fear. Uh, verse 19 of chapter 2 said, You believe that God is one, you do well. And by the way, again, the reference to the Shema you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that God is one. And so much so that they have an emotional reaction. They just, they tremble and they shudder in fear. You know, you think about the the demons. Throughout all of human history, they have watched God working with man, and yet they still try to rebel against his plan. But the reality is they know for a fact that God is one. They have seen him work, but yet that is not a saving faith. And so we brought it to the point that the the idea of a dynamic faith, this idea that there's fruit fruit in a person's life when they repent of their sins, that there's evidence of a changed life. And uh, it says, uh, verse 24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And uh, we looked last week at two different stories. Abraham, the fact that he was willing to sacrifice his son, it was not because he's just willing to do whatever God says. It was so much more. He was trusting in a promise, and he was it was evidenced by his action. He believed that if he took the, the life of his son, that God would be, would raise him from the dead. And then the other one was Rahab, that she gathered her family in her, her apartment, if you want to call it that, as the men had said, be here in this place and tie a cord around the window and you will be spared and everybody in this place. So she believed and trusted in the promise of, the, of God's people and she was spared. And so last week, we brought this idea just to close off. You say you trust him with your eternal life, but yet you can't trust him with you, your earthly life. You know, we always, it's its like the unseen, it seems like it's easier to trust him with our eternal life, but truth be told, if we have really trusted him with our eternal life, we it's clearly evident that we're trusting him with our earthly life. And so uh, today's passage, uh, we're going to be talking about the tongue, uh, James chapter three, verses one through twenty, or verse one through twelve. Uh, just the first part of it. I was going to go for the whole chapter, but it was so rich, uh, so many things that jumped out that that I wasn't really prepared to jump into, and the Lord just really opened up things in my own heart. So I, I want to share with you today, but sweat the small stuff is what we're going to talk about today. Sweat the small stuff. You've heard the quote, uh, don't sweat the small stuff. It's like, don't worry about the little things in life. That's the, the mindset of that little, uh, that little phrase. Don't worry about the small things, the little things in life, but worry about the big things. Well, in reference to the tongue, we need to sweat the small stuff. We need to be fearful. I know it is tiny, but it is extremely powerful. That little thing can pack a powerful punch. Uh, the word, word of God says in Proverbs, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Listen, with the tongue of man, people can literally die or be spared by the tongue of man. And let me give you a couple examples. Uh, the, the word of these jurors, by the word, the declaration of these jurors, a criminal is either charged or, or declared free. You know, and the judge can determine what the what the ruling is in that case. And so, all this is happening. It's all happening by the witness of the tongue of a person. You think about a doctor's report. A doctor comes and shares with you uh, advice, uh, maybe to. to improve your health conditions or maybe it's even more a terrible situation and you have to have more extreme uh steps more extreme precautions and you would take the word that they say and and take it in your heart and believe and it would help you in life literally there's power in in life in the the word of a doctor you know tony cavalier for years has been doing the weather and when tony cavalier opens his mouth and says, there's a tornado coming. What do we do? We gather our families and we huddle in a place, an interior room or in a basement. And, and by the word of Tony Cavalier, we are all warned to, to move to action. It's very powerful. For the sake of sparing lives. Lives. Think about a coach. I had to put this. Um, because when, uh, when the whole collapse... Um, in in the nineteen early seventies, um, Coach Jack Lengel shows up, and this is not Jack Lengel. This is this is uh, Matthew McConaughey playing his part, but he shows up, and he. He unites this team towards a common cause. And, and one man, the words coming out of one man, reestablished a football program and gave a, a whole community an identity again. They rallied behind this, this man's coaching, not Matthew McConaughey. But also you think about a teacher. I know these are a number of examples. A teacher who teaches inspires with the words for these children to excel in life. And a preacher Lord willing, the words that are coming out would, would stir life among people, that people would recognize their need of Jesus. It's by the word that, that lives are affected for good, by the tongue. But so often, you think about how many kids are bullied and how bullying can stir uh, in this, this, this kid that's being bullied can stir these feelings of uh, of the poor self-worth and just um, even uh, suicidal thoughts and depression and number of things and it can be just by the words of one kid can cause all these troubles in another nearly every uh, every murder is born out of... An argument or a disagreement, or you know, there's there's a reason why somebody would be moving to action to commit a terrible crime, and so many times it escalates with the tongue. People can lose lives. the word of, The word of God in a minute uh, talks about um, that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, the idea is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words cause way more damage. Words have the ability, the power to uh, either bring life to somebody or bring death to somebody. So really, whose fault is it? Whose fault if a good thing comes out of somebody's mouth? Whose fault is it? We say, James is saying, it's the tongue's fault. But the tongue can't do anything that the brain doesn't tell it to. Like, let me say it this way. If you have a chance, somebody passes you the ball, the clock's running down, and you pull up for a jump shot, and you hit the winning shot, people don't give you a high five because your hand did a great job. They're not acknowledging how good your hand is, right? Another thing, when when Nick gets up here and sings, and Samantha, and just beautiful voices, God's really blessed in that area of their life, but we don't say, man, those those are sweet vocals, we're not saying that about their vocal cords. It, you know, we're saying that like we're not praising or personifying and praising that, that body part. Reality is my tongue cannot do anything that my brain does not tell it to do. And so James says it this way a couple weeks ago, we talked: if anyone thinks he's religious, this just this Sunday best rituals, these things that, um, that we do openly on weekends or, or in our religious life, the idea, and does not bridle his tongue, does not control his, his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And again, uh, he says this way, uh, Jesus said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. So a, a person's heart is changed, it produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is the indicator of the human heart. My tongue indicates what is in my heart. So whatever is in my heart will come out through my mouth. And these are eternal implications These are evidences to show your eternal standing before God. Your your tongue reveals your heart. And so uh, we're going to jump into chapter three. Uh, This first first verse, I I want you to just see this thought. I'm going to specifically talk with teachers and those who aspire to teach. Uh, It says there, not many of you should become teachers, Like, literally talking about serving in a teaching capacity in the local church. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. For you know that we who teach should be judged with greater strictness. We're we're judged by a higher standard because we assume this greater accountability. And and really, there's, there's condemnation or commendation if we teach. There's condemnation if we teach what's wrong before God. And there's commendation if we teach what's right. And so the idea is be very careful and cautious about how we select teachers. We don't look for the one that is, 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 can, can really talk well in front of people, really. We're not looking for the one that is a great communicator and a great personality. Uh, we're looking for somebody that realizes how huge This accountability is before God. Ironically, most people who teach feel so burdened with the weight of preaching what is right, teaching what is right, that they fear before God that they would lead somebody astray so many people look at a teaching position or a preaching position, like where I'm standing right now, as if this is a a position that they're aspiring, that this is like there's there's some sort of power or prestige in this place, but they so so many like to be heard, really. but they understand the accountability before God. Uh, let me just say, when I was a kid, I grew up in regular Baptist churches. Uh, Those are glorified word for an independent Baptist church up north and uh, grew up in New York. And uh, as I was going to church, these places, I heard all growing up, you need to be careful about Southern Baptist churches. Uh, I I was I was always weary when somebody said, hey, yeah, we're the Southern Baptists. I'd be like, first of all, I didn't know very many because I grew up in New York. But but I was always weary. I was careful around Southern Baptists. It's funny to me while I'm standing right here saying these words, it's pretty cool to see how God's taken this full circle. But the reality is, I, I went to Georgia, and uh, our church was an independent Baptist church down there. It was a solid church. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think it was. It's just a powerful, solid ministry down there. And they said, we're going to go to the men's conference at First Baptist Church of Woodstock. And if you don't know much about it, it's just a conference. I think there's two weekends and thousands and thousands of men across the southeast gather at this church to hear Johnny Hunt preach. And Johnny Hunt was this guy that was a a leader in the Southern Baptist. I think he still has a role in the Southern Baptist. But at one time, I believe he was the president. And so as you go there, like, I'm going there to hear this man out. Because I've heard my whole life that Southern Baptists, I don't know, they're shaky on some areas of theology. And so I wanted to hear from the horse's mouth uh, what is sound and what is right. And so I sat among thousands and thousands of men expecting to hear this man get up and tickle my ears with a little bit of fluff. Uh, But the reality is he got up and preached the gospel. He was unashamed to preach what it was true. And I remember walking around, I'm thinking, how in the world can this man have thousands and thousands of people at his church preaching a solid message of the gospel, standing on the truth of the word of God? So why in the world did I hear that? Why did I hear that growing up about the Southern Baptist? And this will give you so much clarity about the power of the tongue. You see, back in the 50s and 60s, in the Southern Baptist Convention, there was this push in the seminaries to pull people to a liberal view of Scripture, and this more of a humanism was creeping into the seminaries, and as the the professors stood and taught, as the seminaries controlled the message, the, the professors stood and taught, they were influencing the students who would soon be the pastors in the next generation. And so as they were influencing this, this message, this teaching was being proclaimed by the, the mouth of these teachers. It was influencing every pastor that was going into pulpits. And therefore it was influencing every church across the Southern Baptist Convention. It was just this stronghold. And what happened was they were not taking strong stances on things that are fundamental to the faith. And so what happened is they had a reputation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But the crazy thing is, there's some, look it up for yourself, something called the conservative resurgence that happened. It's this grassroots uh, situation where, where all these pastors were taking back the seminaries and they were standing on the authority of the word. And so in the 70s, 80s, it led to this point where they took back the entire convention. There's this idea that if you control the teachers, if you control the message You control 50,000 churches in the country. So when you say be careful about teachers, uh, what a teacher can say, what one teacher can say from a podium can influence 50,000 churches. So praise God, though, for that resurgence. Uh, That's probably why I'm here, uh, because we stand on the word of God. Um, I I was looking at this idea Uh, going into the word of God, situations where somebody taught or grabbed the ear of people and and proclaimed something that was false that became a narrative, like it changed the direction of people for years. And so look, it says, uh, uh, keep in mind, by the way, um, I want to encourage current teachers. I want to encourage you not discourage you by these words, but I want to warn aspiring teachers. The word of God's clear that we're called to preach the word, but more than that, and as I guess in the same light, to practice what we preach. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Look, Paul said this. He said, it is the Lord who judges me. I stand before God as a teacher of the word. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Only God can see your obedience and faithfulness. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord, from God. It's this idea that you've been faithful and your commendation is coming because of your faithfulness. And so your tongue has the power to shift entire generations. All right? I want to talk about this. Verses two through five is this change of direction. Uh, It gives this idea of two situations of, of bits and rudders. Bits are tiny little things, rudders are tiny little things, but they control the greater thing. Look at verse two. It says, for all stumble in sin in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, or in other words, doesn't say anything wrong, words don't come out of his mouth that are wrong. He is a perfect man. It could be speaking specifically, like he could be perfect. Only perfect people do it, and none of us are perfect, so nobody can. It could be that context, but it could also be meaning mature. If you are able to control, then there's maturity there. Also, uh, Able also to bridle his whole body or rein in the urges. If you can control your tongue, then certainly you can control the urges of your body. And so if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. One little piece of metal stuck in that the mouth of a horse can control this beast that's way more powerful than we are. We'd get trampled by a horse, just so powerful and strong, yet we with a bit can determine exactly where that horse would go. The same idea, verse four, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Just a tiny piece of metal determines wherever the pilot directs it. Like The captain says we need to go over there. They turn the rudder and the whole ship goes. Even in the middle of storms has the power to direct the whole ship. So also... The tongue is a small member, just a tiny part of our body, yet boasts great things. Uh, I, this verse right here is so powerful to me. As you look at Acts, how God used uh, our forefathers of the faith. Uh, Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2. Do You remember he proclaimed boldly the message of Jesus through the word of God and the, the challenged them with the gospel. Very powerful message in Acts 2, two. And keep in mind, this is the man that was a failure, but God reshaped his heart and, and used him. Uh, and here it says, uh, in the word of God, says that 3,000 men were saved. 3,000 souls were saved. And you think a couple chapters later, chapter 7 of Acts, Stephen is standing and preaching a similar message You know, declaring Jesus through the Bible and then declaring the gospel, very powerful in that moment. He stood and preached, and what happened? 3,000 men weren't saved, but he was stoned to death. Both men preached similar messages in some ways. And one, 3,000 people came to Christ. The other was stoned to death. So which one was being led by the Spirit to stand and preach? They both were both preached very powerful by the tongue of Peter 3000 trusted Christ by the tongue of Stephen. There was a man standing there that day that heard and witnessed for himself the stoning of Stephen. His name was Paul at the time was Saul. Both were spirit led. Both preached the gospel. Both were used of God. Reality is we all want to be used by God like Billy Graham. We want our tongue to be used by God like Billy Graham, but yet we struggle to take the gospel to one. It has the power to change our direction, the power of the tongue. It has the as it is a weapon of destruction. Uh, verses five through eight, uh, we're picking up the second part of verse five. It says how great. A forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. This idea compares now the tongue to a little spark. A small fire can set ablaze. Uh, I, I was doing research last night. It said a uh, number of sites. It was I picked up the range that anywhere from 85 to 90% of all forest fighters are started by human beings. And smoldering cigarettes... You think about how tiny a cigarette is. A smoldering cigarette that's flicked out of a car is one of the most common triggers that, cause human, uh, that humans have caused wildfires. One little cigarette can cause millions of acres to be charred, just completely decimated. It can destroy homes. It can, it can kill people. It can even kill all the wildlife. They're fleeing, but it said in one place that a fire travels, I believe, at 14 miles an hour. A, A fire is traveling, and so a lot of animals, they just get weary, and they just die in the fire. And it can even change local weather. One tiny little butt of a cigarette can change local weather. And so, the scary thing is this pause before the, we walk further is this pause to understand that what one tongue can do can affect so many. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness not literally a fire it's but in a sense it's this world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our members staining or contaminating our whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and literally this entire course of life you look into it it's this idea of the entire circle of life every person that comes in influence with you like in your sphere of influence set on fire and set on on fire by hell. Uh, I was looking into the idea of Nazi philosophy, and uh, man, don't don't tread too deep in that because it's crazy how demonic um, how demonic that thought process was. But coming out of World War I, Hitler blamed, began to shift blame on the the problems that were happening in Germany. This depression throughout the whole country was blamed on the Jews. And so he promoted uh, at the same time this idea of a master race and he sought to establish, he began to work plans to establish this master race, this perfect race by eliminating the other ones. And so in 1935... 1935, I believe that was seven years before World War II, he stripped all Jews of their citizenship and rights. And his goal then was to begin to rid the world of Jews. And his words, his words killed 11 million people. 1.1 million children Over the course of 10 years, he may not have physically been the one to murder each one. But by his words, he is held accountable for what has happened in that country. Uh, It's crazy. I looked into it. Two thirds of Jews living in Europe during World War II were killed. Two thirds of Jews all over Europe. But where in the world, and this is this is scary to me. Where in the world did Hitler grab hold of that thought? There was a man uh, in the 1850s, he actually lived from 1816 to 1882, long before World War II. Long before. His name was Arthur de Gibbon, uh, Gobineau. And, and during that time, he began to promote this idea that there was a greater race and it's terrible. It is exactly opposite to what Scripture says. About man, man says there's only or the word of God says there's only one race, is the human race, and he began to say that there's this supreme race, right? And and there was a number of people that grabbed hold of it, but this guy named uh, Houston Stewart Chamberlain, he began to promote this idea that they're Aryans, this idea again of a of a superior race that helps all of mankind, and they began to to you know, call for this idea of promoting this one race. Scary that the philosophy of one man can lead to the promotion of this thought by another man, and then a couple years later, 50 years later, the words of these men are influencing a man named Adolf Hitler to eliminate 11 million lives. And we just blame Adolf Hitler but could it be that these men are held to the same level of accountability? It's a crazy concept, the power of the tongue. And so verse, uh, verse 7, uh, no, let me pause real quick. Uh, I was going to move on. When Jesus had risen from the dead, it's crazy. Who, did, who were the first ones to get there? It was the women. They came and they saw and they heard with their ears and they ran back to testify and they were telling all the disciples. By their word, many believed and they ran to see for themselves and, and it was the promotion of the gospel all over the world. But crazy thing, they, they witnessed and testified. But Matthew chapter 28 says this. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests, all that had taken place. So the guards had witnessed. And they were going to testify. They were, they were scared for their lives. But they were going to testify to the chief priests. Religious rulers. And when they assembled, had assembled with the elders and taken counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. It said... Tell his disciples, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were sleeping, while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The reality is that the chief priests, like they lied about this story, and the whole thing turned into this spiritual bondage for years and years. And the reality, today, the greatest argument against the resurrected Jesus, I hear it all the time, all through the years, I've heard it constantly, is that somehow the disciples snuck in and stole the body. What was promoted when Jesus rose from the dead over 2,000 years, around 2,000 years later, is still promoted as the lie to be an argument against his resurrection. And we know these things are not so. So verse seven says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed by mankind. God told Adam to subdue, have dominion over them. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a different kind of beast, is what it's saying. The idea, no person can tame their tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So if I can't, who in the world can? Who can control my tongue? David said this, he said, set a guard, O Lord. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Is the idea that I can't control it. But Lord Jesus, will you guard my mouth? Don't allow things to come out that shouldn't, that aren't of you. It's Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart, or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the reality is, if your faith is genuine, it's going to come out. If Jesus is alive in you, you'll hear it out of the mouth. You know, if if God is ruling and reigning in my heart, the Holy Spirit is using my tongue to speak life, it's all this evidence of a genuine faith. And so here, evidence of dominion. Uh, This is God ruling in you. The evidence of dominion. Uh, Proverbs 10, 11 says this. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. It brings life to all around. And uh, if, you, know, you, you think of a fire we've read through the last passage. Think of a fire that it's very destructive. We think of forest fires and set ablaze all these woods by one little, one little spark. But fire can also be extremely constructive, It can be very good. You think of all the uses of a fire, my favorite of which is a campfire. There's no greater smell in the world than the smell of a campfire to me. Um, And and really, I just love to sit at a place like this. I could sit for hours and hours, alone even, uh, or with friends. But you think the scent from a candle, uh, the heat from a wood stove, uh, fire being used for what it's good for, heating a home. Uh, the idea too of combustion in an engine—it's brought on by by fire. Fire enables you to go to Walmart, to go to Target, and so this idea. And, and really, I am a pyro a little bit. I'm a closet pyro uh, pyrotech guy. I love to make a big bonfire and watch it go ablaze. Like just that brings so much joy to my heart. But the evidence, the idea is the evidence that the Lord is reigning, has dominion in my heart, is heard by what comes out of my mouth. Uh, funny story, years ago, um, a kid that was, didn't have much, he came from a little bit of a rough background, uh, but man, we welcomed him. We invited him to come to our student ministry at the time. Uh, his name was A.J. Uh, he plugged into the youth group, and I, I, was, I knew he was in there, so I was intentionally sharing the gospel uh, from, the, from the platform constantly. And so week after week, one night he trusted Christ, one Wednesday night. Uh, I heard him cry out to the Lord. And, uh, and so later that week, I invited him to a youth rally. Like, it was probably Friday or Saturday night. I said, man, you need to come to this youth rally. We'd we'll, we'll love to have you. And so when he got there, he was so excited to see me. Uh, This is one of my favorite stories. He was so excited to see me. He said, man, I know I can tell for sure that I've been saved. And so he was excited. So I said, how do you know that, buddy? You know, what, what do you see? What causes you to believe that you are? He said, because I don't swear half as much anymore. And uh, that was a, that's a funny story. Like he was just so excited because he didn't swear half as much The reality is when God gets a hold of your heart, it changes what comes out of your mouth. So with it, we bless our Lord, the Father, and with it, we curse or or wish evil on people who are made in the likeness of God. Uh, He's calling out this religiosity of the Jewish Christians, people who love God and, and really felt justified to hate their enemy. May it not be. May not be that we ever would hate an enemy. Verse 10 says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, and really, and sisters, in the context, these things ought not to be so. There's these three pictures. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Fresh and salt water, or, or bitter water? I don't know if you've seen this. When you look above, if you have a freshwater stream going into the ocean, you can look above and see the salt line in the water. because they can't coexist. It's either salt water or it's fresh water. They are not the same. It's the idea that uh, cursings that come from your mouth, but blessing God, that cannot come from the same thing. It can't intermingle. And he says this, "Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives?" well of course not if it's a fig tree it will bear figs if it's an olive tree it'll bear olives and then or a grapevine produce figs neither can a salt pond yield fresh water and so that that's where we come right now i i want to challenge you with just one takeaway uh I know that a message that speaks on the tongue hits every one of us because of this takeaway. There's only one who can control your tongue, and it's not you. There's only one who can control your tongue. It's not you. The idea that Jesus wants to use your tongue for his purposes. But if he doesn't have your heart and you've not surrendered the members, like literally, is it says, Paul says a number of times, surrender your members as instruments of righteousness. Uh, I love what Paul said, Romans 8. He said, but if Christ is in you, if Jesus is in you, literally, it's not figuratively like we sing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. It's, it's, it's literally, Jesus is in us. He's inhabiting us. We are the temple of God. He is in us. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And I hope you can say yes. That's a question right there. Are you born again? Do you have the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead in you? If you've trusted Christ genuinely, turned your life over to him and accepted his gift of salvation, this idea, um, then he dwells in you. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, look what it says. He will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. A lot of people look at this and think it's a future event that one day he's going to give life to my my body whether I'm buried in a grave and I raised from out of the grave or whether on on the day of rapture that he takes away our body into heavens and he brings life to our mortal bodies yes that is coming but in the context of this passage he's talking about putting to death the works of the flesh putting to death These things in my members, all the aspects of of my body that desire the urges of the flesh, to act out the urges of the flesh. He's saying the spirit, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, including your tongue, but it only comes through his spirit who dwells in you. Not only will he give you life to your mortal bodies, it's literally he is taking your tongue and using it for his glory. And so... As a way of a prayer, if you want a prayer to lay hold of while you're sitting here and you know, man, this past week you might have uh, spouted off at the mouth and just maybe said some destructive things to the people in your circle, your, your people, listen, uh, may your prayer not be, God help me not to say bad things. I think you missed the point if you say, God help me not to say bad things. Because he's not trying to help you, he wants your tongue He wants you to turn it over and trust him with your tongue. Because reality is you cannot, you cannot tame it. Only he can. So let this be your prayer. Just as a tagline, I'm going to pray right now. God, I failed again. I can't control my tongue, but I'm choosing now to put to death the deeds of my flesh. Will you set my heart free? Really, because the heart is the base of of what comes out of your mouth. Will you set my heart free and reign in my mortal body and speak life through my tongue? Let that be your prayer right now, or as David said it this way, he said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips.